Thank you very much. Thank you for this uh, talk based on material I've been working up for a new book that I should uh, hopefully have coming out in the next year. It's still in the copy editing process with the publishers. It's called Getting at Jesus. Um, and we're going to look at uh, Neo or the New Atheism and the Jesus of History. If you haven't had one of my giant postcard-sized business cards yet, uh, pester the person next to you until you get one, because they're floating around. So the new atheism uh, are a bunch of atheists who came to prominence uh, after the 2001 uh, Islamist uh, terrorist attacks in America, uh, particularly. Uh, an American writer called Sam Harris published a book called uh, The End of Faith, on religion, terror, and the future of reason. And this uh, started off a publishing trend of uh, atheist books by folks like uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, Christopher Hitchens, uh, Daniel Dennett, uh, Jerry Coyne, and so on. It was an article in Wired magazine that dubbed them the new atheism, or the new atheists, and the name uh, stuck, and they adopted it for themselves. Uh, that article in Wired magazine described the new atheists as Atheists who condemn not just belief in God, but respect for belief in God. Religion's not only wrong, it's evil. That's only, religion is not only an intellectually mistaken position, but morally bad. It's bad for society, and thus to be fought against. So you could, uh, in simplistic terms, think of the new atheism as the combination of Scientism, the idea that we only know things through the scientific methods, that's how we know things. Uh, materialism, that's what things are, the idea that there only are material things, the natural world is all that there is, plus a moral opposition uh, to religion as bad for people and society. When it comes to the historical Jesus, new atheists are very sceptical. Richard Dawkins, uh, in his book The God Delusion, a uh, bestseller, uh, says this kind of thing. I'm uh, quoting uh, from a number of places here, uh, but this is what he says. Uh, Ever since the 19th century, scholarly theologians have made an overwhelming case that the Gospels are not reliable accounts of what happened. Uh, all were written long after the death of Jesus. The epistles of Paul mentioned almost none of the alleged facts of Jesus' life. They were copied and recopied through many different Chinese whisper generations. The Gospels that made it into the official canon were chosen more or less arbitrarily out of a large sample of at least a dozen. Um, reputable Bible scholars do not in general regard the New Testament as reliable records of what actually happened. The only difference between the Da Vinci Code, uh, the conspiracy novel by Dan Brown, and the Gospels is that the Gospels are ancient fiction, while the Da Vinci Code is modern fiction. Now, Dawkins is wrong about all of that, uh, but I don't have time to show you why. You'll have to go buy the book. <laughs> What I want to do instead is to show you something about the general uh, modernistic approach to the Jesus of history 
and then actually point to 10 things that I can agree with particular new atheists about concerning the uh, historical search for Jesus. So let's have a look at the issue of the Jesus of faith versus the Christ of history. Colin McGinn is not one of the new atheists. He's just a, what we might call, classical atheist, say. He's a philosopher of mine from the States. And he says, I still admire many of the teachings of Jesus Christ and find his life exemplary of some important moral truths. But I long ago rejected the supernatural baggage that accompanies Christian belief. Notice what's going on here. McGinn accepts some of the historical record about Jesus' existence, his ethical teaching, and his life. But he rejects the historical record when it comes to Jesus doing anything supernatural. Well, of course he would. Uh, He's a a naturalist and atheist. The atheist author, Philip Pullman, similarly said Jesus was a great storyteller. To invent the story about the Good Samaritan, you hear it once, you never forget it. You tell it to someone else, and it still has the same effect. The man was a genius of storytelling, if nothing else. So again, uh, Pullman uh, accepts some of the historical record when it comes to Jesus' existence, uh, ethical teaching, and life, but he rejects the historical record when it concerns anything supernatural. And the new atheists do the same thing. going on here is very interesting and significant, I think. The Good Samaritan parable that Pullman talks about, it appears in the second-hand report of one gospel, Gospel of Luke, that was written at, at the earliest about 30 years after the supposed event of Jesus telling that story. Nevertheless, 60% of the the Liberal Jesus Seminar fellows rated this story as uh, authentic, and a further uh, 29% rated it as probably historically authentic. Here's a chart of miracles Jesus is said to have done that appear in more than one gospel more than one source. And this is particularly significant when that uh, more than one source includes the Gospel of John, uh, which is, uh, in literary terms, independent of the three synoptic Gospels. Historians would normally count that as an independent witness. So we've got multiple independent witnesses to some of these miracles. The outline of Jesus' death and resurrection can be established from the multiple independent early historical testimonies of the the early creed in 1 Corinthians 15 that Paul quotes, the pre-Markan passion narrative that's included in Mark 15 to 16, Peter's Pentecost sermon recorded in Acts 2, and an early sermon by Paul recorded in Acts 13. About speeches in Acts, the New Testament theologian uh, James Dunn comments that Luke has sought out much earlier material and has incorporated it 
into the, these brief, formalised expositions that he attributes to Peter and Stephen and Paul and so on. Uh, the notoriously sceptical scholar Bar Ehrman concurs. He says the speeches in Acts are particularly notable because they are in many instances based on oral traditions. They incorporate materials from the traditions about Jesus that existed long before Luke put pen to papyrus. So this, this information predates Luke writing. Or again, there's a, a chart here of uh, those four sources and the way that they were generally dated by scholars. Uh, Peter's Pentecost sermon from AD 33, 1 Corinthians 15, a creed going back to AD 33 to 36-ish, the pre-Mark and Passion narrative in Mark going back to about AD 37 maybe, and Paul's sermon in Antioch uh, from uh, AD 45. Four independent early testimonies that together outline the basics of Jesus' death, burial, raised, appeared. We've got multiple first century sources for the resurrection appearances of Christ. Again, uh, a bit of a tabulation here of places, the witnesses, uh, the type of interaction that people said they had with the resurrected Jesus, and uh, multiple biblical references for those appearances. In particular, we've got multiple independent sources for at least two individual appearances and three group appearances or experiences of an apparently resurrected Jesus. So, some of the supernatural baggage, to quote McGinn, is supported by a lot more evidence, historically speaking, than some of the ethical teaching that it's accepted by atheists like McGinn and Pullman. That's interesting, isn't it? What's going on? Well, here's New Testament scholar Helen Bond. She says that modern academic study of the historical Jesus only really began in the wake of the 18th century Enlightenment, with its rejection of a God who intervenes in history in supernatural ways. The emergence of historical criticism in the 19th century allowed distinctions to be made between the Christ of faith and the Jesus of history. Distinctions that have underpinned the quest for the historical Jesus ever since. Remember Richard Dawkins at the beginning of that uh, conglomeration of quotations that I read out saying, ever since the 19th century, and then a whole load of sceptical things. That's what he's referring to, what Bond's talking about, that rejection of a God who does supernatural things within the world. Now, of course, the Enlightenment was not the monolithic anti-God movement that Bond portrays it as being. Many of the leading lights of the Enlightenment were Christians, or at least theists. But here's the key point. The rejection of a God who intervenes in history in supernatural ways does not, does not allow the distinction between the Christ of faith and the Jesus of history. It requires 
It demands that distinction and it does so regardless of the evidence. The modern academic study of the historical Jesus described by Bond is in that sense the, the search for a Jesus consistent with a materialist, metaphysically naturalistic, atheistic worldview. This means that the Jesus happily acknowledged by many atheists and agnostics is a Jesus of faith um, in the mischaracterization uh, of that term as the new atheists use it to mean uh, uh, a blind faith, a faith regardless of evidence. An understanding of Jesus shaped by a faith, a commitment to, a belief in naturalism, materialism. Rather than being a Jesus of history, in the sense of an understanding of Jesus produced by following the historical evidence wherever it leads. So here's French neo-atheist Michel Onfray asserting that we should approach any uh, purportedly holy book from a standpoint hostile to belief in revelation. And he just assumes that the answer to his rhetorical question, well, who would have done the revealing, is nobody. But in that case, one better not approach the New Testament demanding evidence for its revelatory status. Doing that would involve a question-begging double standard. As uh, Morland and Craig point out in their book, Philosophical Foundations for Christian Worldview, it's really only to the extent that one has good grounds for believing atheism to be true that you can be rationally justified in, demand, in denying the possibility of miracles. Because if God exists, then miracles are possible. Um, so if it's even possible that God exists, it's possible that miracles happen and you can't foreclose the issue without actually going and looking at the evidence to see if there's enough evidence to convince you that a miracle's happened. But that, time and time again, is what the new atheists really do. So here's Daniel Dennett saying, in the end, there is no true religion in the factual sense, for there is no good evidence supporting their truth claims. Now, it's tempting to take this as a demand or a request for evidence to support belief. He's saying, uh, give me the evidence. But Dennett also says that historical arguments simply cannot be introduced into the serious investigation of God or gods since they're manifestly question-begging. No, actually, it's Dennett who is begging the question here. He's begging the question against revelation and evidence for revelation by invoking what he calls the scientific method with its assumption of no miracles. So what he basically says is, show me the evidence and by the way, I'm not allowed to look at any evidence. <laughs> Dawkins criticises religious faith as requiring blind trust in the absence of evidence, given even in the teeth of evidence. I, it seems like he's saying the problem here is a lack of evidence for miracles. Please show me the evidence. 
But he also asserts the 19th century is the last time when it was possible for an educated person to admit to believing in miracles without embarrassment, from which we can all deduce that I must be uneducated. In other words, he's saying, I won't believe evidence for miracles, and you shouldn't too, that's far too embarrassing. Let me put some peer pressure on you to steer clear of this issue. This is a double standard. Christopher Hitchens said he thought that David Hume, the Scottish sceptical philosopher in the 18th century, wrote the last word on the subject of miracles. He clearly hasn't read any philosophy of religion published since the 18th century, if he thinks that. As William Lane Craig retorts, uh, the fallaciousness, that the problems with Hume's reasoning on miracles has been recognised by the majority of philosophers writing on the subject today. And that's not just Christian philosophers, that's philosophers writing on the topic today, which includes, of course, many atheists and agnostics. For example, agnostic philosopher John Ehrman wrote a book called Hume's Abject Failure on this very topic, in which he said an epistemology, that is a, a theory of knowledge, that does not allow for the possibility that evidence, whether from eyewitness testimony or other sources, can establish the credibility of a UFO landing, a walking on water, a resurrection, such a theory of knowledge which just doesn't even allow the possibility that evidence could convince you that something like that has happened is inadequate. So neo-atheists often attack Christianity by wielding these very scientific sounding demands for evidence on the false assumption that Christians have no evidence, whilst actually rejecting miracles on philosophical a priori, that is, before experience of evidence, grounds. This is a massive double standard. The so-called Jesus of history is actually a Jesus of faith in various a priori philosophical constraints upon doing history. So actually, I think there is no good reason why the so-called Christ of faith shouldn't also be the Christ of history if the evidence supports that conclusion. So there's a bit of criticism of their basic approach. We haven't got time to go into replies to a lot of the particular uh, criticisms that different new atheists have about the Gospels and when they were written, who wrote them and all of that stuff. You'll have to dive into uh, my book or some of the free materials that you'll get through my uh, website at peterswilliams.com. Uh, um, but let me now turn uh, to what I do in the conclusion of my book, Getting at Jesus, and look at ten points of agreement. Ten places where I can say, yes, I agree with this new atheist on this point. I think you'll find this fascinating. First agreement. A genuine search for truth must be open to the facts, open to the evidence. Dawkins says there is objective truth out there. He's no postmodernist. And it is our business to find it. Christopher Hitchens says objectivity means the search for truth no matter what. 
Don't give in to peer pressure to avoid the search for truth. Amen. Preach it, brother. <laughs> Sam Harris. Sam Harris says, Nothing is more sacred than the facts. No one, therefore, should win any points in our discourse for deluding himself. The litmus test for reasonableness should be obvious. Anyone who wants to know how the world is, whether in physical or spiritual terms, will be open, open to new evidence. Yes. Two, miracles are possible and even knowable. Lawrence M. Krauss, uh, a new atheist physicist, admits that miracles can't be ruled out a priori unless one first rules out the possibility that God exists. It's not enough to say, I think it's very unlikely that God exists, but I can't prove that he doesn't, which is exactly what Richard Dawkins says about God. You have to think, it's definite, there's no God. He says, a God who can create the laws of nature, as there would be if there was a creator God, can presumably also circumvent them at will. Um, I could quibble with his definition of a miracle here, but uh, you get the, the general point. Whilst neo-atheists tend to, to bow down, to genuflect before J David Hume's long-discredited argument about miracles, uh, Jerry Coyne, a neo-atheist biologist, admits, Hume took it too far. No amount of evidence, it seems, could ever override his conviction that miracles were really the result of fraud, ignorance, misrepresentation, and so on. Yet perhaps there are some events where a miracle is more likely than human error or deception. He's basically saying the same criticism that John Ehrman gave. Coyne recommends approaching the question of miracles with an open mind. Who'd have thought it? Stating, it would be a closed-minded scientist who would say that miracles are impossible in principle. Three, Christianity makes truth claims that are open to historical investigation. Dawkins says this, did Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead? Did he himself come alive again three days after being crucified? There is an answer to every such question whether we can discover it in practice or not. And it is a strictly scientific answer. That is, he means factual, and you can, in principle at least, investigate it through looking at evidence. Victor Stenger, uh, who was a new atheist a physicist and a philosopher, said physical and historical evidence might have been found for the miraculous events of the scriptures. Coyne, again, comments, nothing in science stops us, prohibits us from considering supernatural explanations. If something is supposed to exist in a way that has tangible effects on the universe, it falls within the ambit of science, or you might say at least those effects do, and then perhaps it's then a philosophical argument to say what's the best explanation for that event, but that's a quibble. Uh, and supernatural beings and phenomenon can have real-world effects. So he's saying we can investigate miracle claims. Four, there was a historical Jesus. And many new atheists uh, try and give the impression that there's at least a decent case that there wasn't, but then begrudgingly admit that there was. So Dawkins acknowledged Jesus existed. 
Paris writes of Jesus, the Buddha, Lao Tse, and the other saints and sages of history. Krauss admits that Jesus was a real historical person. And he says, if you asked me, is the weight of historical evidence such that Jesus was a real historical figure? I'd say, the weight of historical evidence is that Jesus was a real historical figure. I do not dispute that the weight of historical evidence suggests that he was a real person. As Bart Ehrman comments, whether we like it or not, Jesus certainly existed. Uh, Ehrman wrote a whole book on this topic because although he's a very sceptical New Testament scholar, he was getting fed up to the back teeth with the kind of neo-atheist, yeah, there was probably no Jesus, there's no good evidence for it kind of line because he thought uh, it's just mistreating history, and it is. So Bart Ehrman says, we have more evidence for Jesus than we have for almost anybody from his time period. Five, the historical Jesus has not been obscured by pagan mythology. You get this idea put forward by many new atheists that, okay, there was the historical Jesus and he had his Jewish followers and they thought of him as the Messiah and maybe a prophet and all of that. Uh, and then he got crucified and then for some reason they came up with this belief that he'd been resurrected and they had delusions or something it's a whole other argument uh, and then belief in Jesus spread out into the the classical pagan world of the Greeks and the Romans with their background of gods and Zeus coming down in a shower of coins to have his way with a lady that he liked and to produce the demigod who was you know half god and half human like Hercules or whatever and uh, against that background the people started coming up with the idea that this that Jesus was was sort of divine and gradually gradually elevated him over a long period of time until it, sometime in the second century maybe people first started thinking of Jesus as divine that's a load of baloney I don't have time to give you all of the evidence as to why that is, uh, but I can at least show you that not all of the neo-atheists buy into this theory. So here's Lawrence Krauss again, uh, who uh, in uh, a series of debates with William Lane Craig actually, first of all started off putting forward this sceptical line of, oh Jesus is just another pagan corn god who dies and rises again with the cycle of the seasons and so on. Uh, but then was eventually forced to conclude uh, and to admit uh, one may argue that these connections that he'd been talking about between Jesus and pagan mythology are spurious, and I'm willing to accept that. Six, the New Testament writers wrote what they honestly believed to be the truth about Jesus. They may have been mistaken, but they were not lying. They were not producing works of fiction, as Dawkins says. According to Michel Onfray, anyway, he says... Mark, Matthew, Luke and John did not knowingly deceive, neither did Paul. They said what they believed was true and believed what they said was true. Clearly, they believed what they wrote. Seven, Jesus did think he was divine. Hitchens acknowledged that Jesus reportedly believed himself, at least some of the time, to be God or the Son of God. Krauss states that Jesus had delusions of being God. He thought he was deluded about it, but he did think it. This, of course, brings up the issue of C.S. Lewis's famous formulation of the uh, traditional argument. Uh, was Jesus 
divine as well as human as he claimed? Uh, or was he a bad man, bad either uh, morally because he's lying about it or bad intellectually because he's mistaken about a fundamental ele element of his character? And you get the, uh, the diagram here of the lunatic liar lord, you get that nice alliteration in English at least anyway. Uh, and C.S. Lewis's uh, particularly famous quote from Mere Christianity where he says, uh, you know, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. Uh, like McGinn and, and Pullman think, uh, because of this claim to be divine, if he wasn't divine, he'd either be a conman and a liar and a blasphemer, or he'd be a, a, a lunatic, uh, with a really big divergence between his self-image and his reality. But eight, Jesus wasn't a lunatic or a liar, at least according to some new atheists. Harris records realising that Jesus, the Buddha, Lao Tzu, and the other saints and sages of history had not all been epileptics, schizophrenics, or frauds. Harris bears witness to Jesus' goodness and wisdom by grouping him together with the other saints and sages of history. And moreover, he repudiates any dismissal of those saints and sages, including Jesus, as epileptics, schizophrenics, or frauds, which I think we can take as indicating a more uh, general dismissal of the idea that they're, they're mad or bad. On the one hand, Richard Dawkins admits there is no evidence Jesus himself was barking mad. On the other hand, Dawkins says we know enough about Jesus to conclude that he was a great moral teacher. Dawkins' laughable, risible attempt to suggest that Jesus was just, quote, honestly mistaken about his divinity. Really? I think that constitutes a sort of backhanded compliment to the, the lunatic liar lord trilemma. He's adding in, look, he's saying this is a false trilemma, there's another option here. Jesus really did think he was divine, and that claim was false, but he wasn't uh, a liar or a lunatic. He was just honestly mistaken. You know, sometimes I'm honestly mistaken about which pocket I've put my keys in. Uh, Jesus was just honestly mistaken about whether he was the creator of the universe and people's ultimate source of uh, uh, forgiveness, things like that. Yeah. Every audience that I've uh, communicated this information to always have the same reaction as you just did. <laughs> as Stephen Davis says, it's not easy to see how any sane religious first century Jew could sincerely but mistakenly hold the belief I am divine. I love the way that the uh, British uh, vicar, Nicky Gumbel, uh, who produced the Alpha Course, if you've heard of that, uh, puts it. Here, where he says uh, the irony of Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, is that Dawkins says that all Christians are deluded because they believe that there is a God. Uh, but Jesus was not deluded, even though he thought he was God. <laughs> yeah, the point. As Mike King says, anyone honestly mistaken in such a way would actually inevitably be considered insane. But here's the question, why should Dawkins uh, and fellows who follow him uh, not be content to simply dismiss Jesus as either mad or bad? Why not take one of those options? Why go to the desperate lengths of inventing this 
even worse than that, uh, even more ludicrous than that option? Well, quite clearly, it's because even a, a, a simple flick through Jesus' life demonstrates that both of those possibilities are untenable. Ninth, Jesus was executed by crucifixion. Jerry Coyne states, Jesus was crucified, ending everyone's hope of glory. As Charles Foster puts it, the overwhelming conclusion of the mainstream literature, even that written by virulent opponents of Christianity, is that Jesus did indeed die on the cross. Various atheist uh, New Testament scholars have, have said this is perhaps the most historically secure thing that we can know about Jesus, uh, is his crucifixion, because there are so many uh, independent Christian and non-Christian sources talking about it, for example. When you think of the fact that Paul, writing in uh, his letter to the Galatians, prior to uh, 50 AD, uh, given that the crucifixion was in 33 AD, this is about 16 years post-crucifixion, and Paul writes about Christians being crucified with Christ. Crucifixion is also very embarrassing. As Bar Ehrman says, it's highly improbable that the earliest Palestinian Jewish followers of Jesus would have made up the claim that the Messiah was crucified. And I've, I've got here, I don't know if you can see it very clearly in the picture, it's a bit of graffiti, dates to about 200 AD. Uh, found in Rome, scratched into a wall, there's a donkey-headed figure of a man on a cross, and a man looking up, with an outstretched uh, art hand raised, looking up at this donkey-headed figure on the cross, and the, the writing translates as Aximinos worships his god, or Aximinos, worship your god. Someone is making fun of the fact that Aximinos worships this crucified dude as god. I mean, who's making the biggest ass? of himself, the guy who gets crucified, or the, the, the guy is worshipping, it's, it's so, oh dear, oh, he's worshipping a crucified guy, I mean how stupid can you be? You see the cultural attitude that would dominate in the ancient world, why on earth would they make up a story in which the saviour, uh, a messiah, was crucified. Tenth, some people believed they met Jesus after his death. Krauss allows, in fact, the fact that people may have seen Jesus walking after his death, if they did, if they report that, I'm willing to accept their belief that they did. <laughs> And that's right, I mean, that's a nuanced you know, expression, and they do, do report that in multiple independent sources and so on, as we've seen. Um, so you'd have to accept that people believed that they saw Jesus. The question is, did they really see a resurrected Jesus, or were they deluded in some way? Was it a hallucination, uh, for example? Um, those are... Um, Issues that, again, I don't have time to go into, which I go into in my book and which you can go into in many other uh, sources, of course. As Jonathan Kendall writes that numerous individuals, including Jesus' closest disciples, 
had experiences subsequent to the crucifixion that led them to conclude that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead is a fact accepted by essentially all New Testament scholars, even those who are most sceptical of Christianity and the resurrection itself. So let's reiterate uh, this list of ten points of agreement by uh, not quote mining in the technical sense, but by quoting what uh, particular new atheists think, uh, and you put together a list of things that actually seems quite counter to the general drift of the general scepticism of the new atheism, which I described in the first part of the talk. So here are ten points of agreement with particular neo-atheists. A genuine search for truth must be open to the facts. And miracles are possible. And it's even possible to know, maybe, that a miracle has happened. And Christianity makes at least some truth claims that are open to historical investigation. And there was a historical Jesus... And that historical Jesus has not been obscured by pagan mythology. The New Testament writers, who are writing in a Jewish first century context, wrote what they honestly believed to be the truth about Jesus. And Jesus did think that he was divine uh, in the sense appropriate to that first century Jewish context, of course. And although he thought he was divine, Jesus wasn't a lunatic or a liar. And he was executed by crucifixion. But some people believed that they met Jesus alive after his death, or came to believe that Jesus was alive after his death. As the Jewish New Testament scholar Giza Vermez writes in his book, The Resurrection. Uh, the idea of the resurrection of the dead was a latecomer in Jewish thought. And it occupied only a small area of the religious canvas of the late Second Temple Judaism, Judaism at the time of Christ. The New Testament completely altered the vista, changed the perspective. In it, the individual resurrection of one Jew Jesus of Nazareth predominates. And it's set in time and space and integrated into history. The situation is profoundly perplexing and the historian must come to grips with this puzzle. And in the last chapter of Vermetti's book, he looks at a number of alternative explanations to the Christian explanation of what happens and dismisses all of them as implausible and ends up saying... I don't know. I just don't know what happened. So, despite the dogmatic scepticism about Jesus that characterises the new atheism as a whole, individual neo-atheists admit points of historical method and historical reality that, when taken together, seem to me to jointly constitute basically the core elements in the case for thinking that the historical Jesus is the figure that Christianity has always taken him to be. I think these neo-atheist concessions to reality should at least, should at least encourage us to agree with Professor I. Howard Marshall, who said this. 
The historian must be open to the significance of Jesus which is suggested to him by the evidence. And that significance may be expressed in terms of the supernatural without the historian feeling that he has sacrificed his intellect. Thank you. I think we're right out of official time. Are we meant to stop at a quarter past? Or do we have a little time for, for questions? Yeah, we do. Good. Okay. That's pleasing. Yes, sir. How do you argue for the deity of Jesus when his history and truthfulness is not in question? For instance, what I've heard is the contentious um, temple thing when he brought the people out and it says he did this so that the prophecy will be fulfilled. So how do you argue that Jesus is God and yet it seems that, is it a question of holy anger as some people call it? Or is it that under is seen in the running? How do you wrestle with that? So I, I wrestle with, with um, trying to establish historically speaking, uh, or through historical methods, that Jesus was God. Uh, complicated question. I will try and, and give some indications of where I'd, where I'd start. Um, I try and use standard historical methods, standard historical tests, uh, by which scholars say, even if this uh, Gospel of Luke or whatever is generally unreliable, if we find things in this Gospel that pass, uh, uh, particularly if they pass several of these tests, then we think that's a bit of reliable information. And I think when you, when you do that, and you go through the New Testament literature uh, and the extra uh, biblical literature as well, you can gather together uh, enough data to know, as the, the New Atheists can see, that Jesus did various things and said various things uh, that meant he thought of himself as uh, on a par with the God of Israel. That he claimed to have the personal authority to pronounce the forgiveness of people's sins. That he was the one who was going to judge people on the judgment day. That he would share God's throne and God's glory on the day of judgment and so on. And so in various ways he thought of himself as divine and the question becomes was he right or wrong is there any evidence to indicate that he was right or wrong now of course the, the resurrection if the resurrection happened that would be the key the key piece of evidence saying he was right because the jews um, considered him to be a blasphemer the reports of his trial uh, basically make it clear uh, that jesus sort of deliberately put his neck in the noose as it were uh, during the trial, uh, claiming that he would come on God's throne and judge the Jewish court that were judging him. And they all say, you know, you've heard his blasphemy, and they rend their clothes in a traditional expression of, of grief. Uh, and so, you know, what more questions do we need to ask? You know, crucify him, get him crucified by the Romans for blasphemy. That's what it would have meant. That's why Coyne says, you know, Jesus was executed, ending everyone's hope of glory. They thought, ah, oh, he's been executed, he can't be the Messiah. We were wrong. What happened to turn them around? What happened to those, those original disciples so that not only did they embrace the culturally embarrassing idea that their Messiah figure had been 
crucified, but they would proclaim that God had got himself crucified on our behalf. Something massive must have happened. If the resurrection happened, that would certainly fit the bill. <laughs> um, but you'd need to look more into the, the arguments about that. that would be the key piece of evidence. But there are other things, like I looked at the lunatic liar lord argument briefly. Um, how does Jesus' claim to be divine square with the other data we have about his moral character um, and his intellectual character? Uh, and it just seems to be a really puzzling thing to find someone who honestly believes themselves to be on a par with Yahweh, but who does not otherwise give us the impression of being a lying con man or a blasphemer or intellectually subpar and suffering from some sort of uh, florid delusions. Yeah, I hope that's a few indications. Thanks. Um, yes, on the front row here. Uh, yep. Uh, which slide in particular? Oh, to send it round. No, I, I, I have a policy of not uh, sharing uh, PowerPoints around, um, but my recording of the talk will be on my podcast channel, which you can get through the through my, my website address, which is on the card. And of course, they're uh, very nicely filming uh, the event here. Um, so it will, I hope, if it's all the technology has worked, eventually end up on, on Tinternet at some stage. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, do we have time for, for one more? Uh, chap's had his hand up for a while. Yeah, thank you. About the time span between Jesus died and the first were written. Yeah. What would historians in general say about that time span? Okay. So this is a question about the time span between uh, the events of Jesus' life and when the Gospels in the New Testament were written. What's that historical gap? Because obviously the, the smaller that gap, the better that bodes for the accuracy of what they say. So um, uh, all historians who know what they're talking about are agreed that the Gospels in the New Testament were written in the first century. So they're written between the time of Jesus' life and the end of the first century. Then the debate starts and the majority position would put uh, the Gospel of John towards, right towards the end of the century, maybe in the, in the 90s, mid-90s, and the Synoptic Gospels somewhere around the sort of 60s, 70s, 80s. Uh, but there's been the general drift of the discussion in recent years has been dating Gospels earlier. So in, in German 19th century liberalism and so on, they thought John was in the second century. And then we discover manuscript data proving that it had to be uh, in the first century. Um, and um, there was also, you might particularly look into the works of a liberal um, theologian called John Robinson, uh, who surprised everyone by writing a book called Redating the New Testament. I think this was in the sort of 70s, uh, where he made an argument that, that's uh, carried a lot of weight with a lot of people, saying um, Luke also wrote the book of Acts, and the book of Acts ends we can sort of date the point of history when it ends, when Paul isn't dead yet, but is in house arrest in Rome. And it doesn't mention various things that you would really expect someone to mention if they had happened by then. Major events like the, the uh, martyrdom of James, the brother of Jesus, uh, the Roman destruction of Jerusalem uh, and the temple and so on. Uh, and therefore, it's plausible to think 
that Luke wrote before those events. The temple was destroyed in AD 70, the Jewish war started in 66, James was uh, martyred a few years before that, uh, and so that would push Acts into the uh, early to sort of mid-60s, and therefore Luke, which he wrote beforehand earlier, and Luke quotes from uh, Mark, so Mark must have been written uh, before Luke, and maybe Matthew somewhere in the middle there, or around the same time as Luke. Uh, so myself, uh, the, argu- the datings I would argue for uh, would put uh, the publication of the final version of the Gospel of Mark in, say, AD 49. I have a suspicion that it may have been what caused the rioting of the Jews in Rome, which got all the Jews kicked out of Rome. And of course, at that time, uh, no one would have made a distinction between Jews who thought Jesus was the Messiah and called themselves followers of the way, and (laughs) didn't call themselves Christians yet, and Jews who disagreed with that. And the publication of something like Mark's Gospel in, in Rome uh, we know that Mark worked as uh, Peter's uh, sort of secretary and, and so on, uh, would certainly have been a sufficient historical cause for that. So um, those are some of the, the arguments. And indeed, uh, various atheist New Testament scholars of late, uh, like, um, uh, I don't know if the name's going to roll off the tip of my tongue, I think James Crossley, have been arguing that the book of, uh, Gospel of Mark may have been written uh, sometime in the 40s. Um, so I'm, I'm by no means... Uh, pushing a sort of uh, extreme conservative evangelical fundamentalist dating uh, when I suggest Mark may have been written at the end of the 40s. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much for your questions and attendance. Thanks.